Jampi. I'm the founder of the Brave Blacklist, and I'm here with two very special ladies. So I, I let you guys introduce yourselves to encourage people to celebrate themselves in their own way. So, so Suzette, please introduce yourself. My name is Suzette Llewellyn. I am an actor and a sign language communicator. So I work with deaf students. I am also a co-author editor of Still Breathing, which we're going to be speaking about, 100 Voices on Racism. I have an allotment. I am also a founder member of the BB Crew, which is an amazing troupe of women. Josephine Melville, Joanne K Judith Jacobs, Beverly Michaels, and we used to have Janet Kay and Joanne Campbell with us, as well as my partner, Suzanne um, Packer. <laughs> well, I'm so glad I didn't go first. Thanks, Suzanne. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, I am uh, the very proud mother, single parent, proud mother of a son who's just done brilliantly in his A-levels. So I'm, I'm, I'm in a glow just from that because he got those yesterday. And also I am an actor by, um, I suppose, profession, but I'm also an educator. I'm a lecturer in acting at Royal Walsh College. Uh, I'm a very, very proud member of the BB crew. Um, and I'm also very proud to be a friend of Suzette Llewellyn. She just motivates me every single day. And I am a co-author, as uh, like Sue said, of Still Breathing 100 Voices, and I'm incredibly proud of it. And just so optimistic as to where it's going to go next, because I don't think it's just about having a book, the book in your hand. I think it'll have, um, it, the potential is enormous. That's me. Followed your career, both of you, and you both said some interesting things that it, this would make the conversation take 10 hours longer than I need it to be. Because you mentioned, so, you know, I didn't know you, you were educators, didn't know you were a sign language communicator. I think first and foremost, what word or sentence best describes how you're feeling right now or your life right now? I woke up this morning and I was just, just a bundle of emotions, feelings there's excitement there's hopefulness there's some cynicism even there's a bit of sadness as well but you've got to be optimistic you know and why have you got to be optimistic I think I'm paraphrasing James Baldwin when he says you know I'm optimistic because I'm alive and you've got to be optimistic and you've got to believe in that possibility of change and this is what we want the book to be a part of because we know the world goes on there's going to be another generation some of us are mothers to that generation, some of us are aunts to that generation or uncles or whatever, but we are, whatever our capacity is, we're here, we're giving birth to another generation, whether physically or metaphysically, that's important. So I am, yeah, just a bit jittery, a bit skittish. Yeah, I mean, everybody who's given their words and work to us also gave us their trust and we've done our best to honour that. I mean, we've had some hiccups, but we have done our best because it came from a good place producing this came from a, a good place. Um, Suzanne, well, give me a word or a sense that describes how you're feeling today. Energised. I am open to change. I am stabilising and I'm alert. Well, we'll go, we'll jump from the book because you've mentioned it without mentioning it. So let's talk about the book, Still Breathing. 100 Voices on Racism. How did this come about? Why did this come about? Shall I dive in, Suze? Yeah, you, you go, you dive in. Yeah, um, it came out of a conversation that the BB crew were having uh, last year, immediately after the death of, or the murder of George Floyd. And having discussed that and just described how we all reacted to it, which was, I think, generally shock, 
trauma, uh, pain, hurt, all of that. We then, the conversation then went to our own experiences of racism. And we discovered in that conversation a lot of new things about each other. You know, we've been together 30 years plus. And I know for a fact there were some things that brought to light that I had never guessed at. And then it, it just seemed the natural um, progression to invite other people outside of BB Crew to talk about. Because what we were very aware of was internalizing this, these reactions. And it was too painful. And personally, I needed to do something creative with it. And because that's what the BB Crew is about, it's transforming our experiences into something that's creative. And in the past, obviously, it's been about stage work, sketch shows through comedy. But for this one, we thought it had to be storytelling. And then the natural pathway led to books. So then we invited other people. We really wanted to stretch that reach. We wanted to invite people, not just from our own personal community, you know, actors, performers. So we went out way outside to all as many sectors and politics, social care, artists, science, government, full works. I think everybody had that mindset that said yes. And even those who said no, but had that mindset was we cannot leave this here. We've got to add to this voice for black lives mattering hence the book Suzette why was it you and Suzanne that came together to deliver this because you said it was like a friendship group conversation but you two kind of like okay we're going to drive this through and what was it what was the pairing well I remember I think I started the conversation because I spoke about something that happened directly to me and it was a few weeks after um the actual murder which was in May I was going over to my mother to describe this in the book this is what was for me the big prompt. I spoke about basically going over to my mother's for her birthday. Remember this is all lockdown, so we had to be doing the distancing and whatever, but we are part of her care bubble. And somebody just sending me a WhatsApp message, which was a beautiful, it was to brown skinned girl. And it had all the women done, and it was just beautiful. All these beautiful black women, young girls just, and I was looking, just smiling, saying, oh, wonderful, lovely. And then I realized I wasn't smiling anymore. I was crying. And it was that kind of crying that you do when you're in a heap, you're just crying and crying and crying. And it was like, where did that come from? What triggered that? And then I realized it was, as Sue says, stuff that you internalize. And this message, which was a beautiful message, my response was not, not just to tweet back, yeah, great, wonderful. It was to, to ball um, because I was seeing myself. I was that small child. I was that five-year-old who already knew that she was, in the world's terms, ugly and less valuable than the other members of, of her infant's class. And that's what triggered that. Because I also, I think it was also the, the tagline on it was, being black is not a crime. It, it winded me. It winded me. So I, when we were speaking, because we were working on another piece, we were speaking, and I spoke about that experience. And then that triggered everybody speaking about different things. And I remember at one point we were talking and then Suzanne did say, because I'm going to have to help you on this, aren't I? And it was the two of us, but it, it was a real... What I remember as well is that, because Suze is such, you know, she's a proactive woman and she just gets on with it. And I remember when we caught up after the original meeting with the, the whole cohort of BBs, Suze had already started writing something. And that, that's where that, I'm going to have to help you with that came about because I thought... 
okay, she's on it already. And then it was just, we, we just got organized, didn't we, Suze? We just yeah. said, right, we've got to put this time aside every day. And it was, I mean, you know, yeah. I, I got to see Suze probably more often than, than anybody else in the world doing this project. And, and, and it was just literally getting, and it, and do you know what? It, that was the part that surprised me how much organization that was involved. I don't think we realized that we were on the train already. It was like, we couldn't get off it now. I didn't want to cut you, but I wanted to just pick up on that energy because I think when you have that thing that whenever the universe connects, you know, the trigger from Whiskey's song, uh, Whiskey and Beyonce's song, Brown Skin Girl, you're hearing it, your emotional reaction, you relay it back to your close circle, and then that triggers something. And then you start, you're compelled to write. And then Suzanne, you're feeling the energy. So it's all, the stars align in a certain way. It's like you're being propelled by a, an other, another entity and you just have to keep moving forward. So I'm picking up on that energy. Was it on your any of your tick off lists, bucket lists to become authors? Because if it wasn't, how the hell did you find out how the hell to do it? <laughs> so you I think said, we're still working that out. <laughs> I, well, it, you know, I think it's one of those things where, you know, when you're a creative, I think there is that thing. And I say that with, with humility when I say creative, because I think everybody's creative, you know, but when you make it your location, it, it has another resonance. And so I think you're always looking at other ways of expression. And so I think deep down, I had that in my head. I'd love to be an author one day, but I don't think it was ever, it wasn't ever, I didn't make concrete steps. Whereas I think, Suze, that was slightly different for you. I mean, I have always wanted to see my name on something in that kind of way. So there was always a little inkling, but again, years ago, I was involved in a group called the Rhythm Writers. And it was a great founding place. So quite a few people from the group who've gone on and have written. It was just wonderful that this opportunity came up. But of course, having said that, wonderful. It's how it came about um, because that was something else. It was a lot of tug and pull, but we, we wanted this to be something positive. As you say, you know, turning poison into medicine because there are things that you use that are poison, but actually they're useful for healing. It's evident in our cooking and our arts went trauma yeah it's not a good thing necessarily but it also if that's what it is we managed to rise through you rise from the ashes from well, a lot of as, destruction as my nan says what don't kill fatten yeah and, abso and absolutely and you know that's an interesting thing you say about because that is true i mean if you look at our cuisine you look at carabinka's cuisine what we've done is taken rubbish and made it into something and that is a wonderful thing that we ha have done. And also that's something else that we speak to the fact that um, if you look at that history of, of the Caribbean and um, South America, of, of the torture of those encampments, which were those plantations, which were, they were, they were, they were, they were torture chambers. But we took that and out of that, we found, we made culture, we made things, we created, we survived. We, are optimistic people. We really are because we keep on looking for another day, another day, another day. And that's very powerful. So once you realize, okay, this is happening, the train is moving, we're on board and you started writing, what was your perk? Cause I, I guess I could imagine whenever I've tried to write it's the brain dump. You get it out and then you've got to pull it back and structure it. So how did you do that? Yeah, well, we had quite a clear brief from the very beginning. So when we were invited, well, we wrote our own first. And the brief was to, and we, we, we narrowed it down to 750 words because we knew, obviously, we could write 
each of us, of the 100 mm. contributors, we could write a book of our own lives and those incidences. So we narrowed it down 750 words or the visual equivalent. So we felt if you, you know, if you felt that you could express that in a visual form. So as you know, we've got a number of artists as well, visual artists as well. And there's poetry, it's not just, you know, prose. And within that brief, we, we, we encourage everybody to outline the incident or incidents of racist discrimination. But then to, because we see ourselves as, as survivors of it and heroes and heroines of it, we wanted everybody to tell us how they transformed it into something great that made them the people they are now. And that's not just the, the headliners, you know, like the Paul Botangs, the David Lammies. It's, you know, our nurses that you wouldn't know of, you know, and our cousins who are, you know, doing their thing in their own private universe and succeeding. And that, that became um, the impetus for everybody, you know, to, to stick to. And, um, and I think for the most part, everybody could find that nugget at the end could, that could say, like we just described, you know, what did we transform? What, you know, how we transformed that particular poison into a medicine. And I think not many people detracted from that brief. And then once we had that, it was very much a matter of, it, it was very important that we didn't change the voice and the editorial aspect of the individual contributor. We had no business doing that because A, it was a sign of respect and it's their story. And we were very, very keen to hear their voice. So it was very minute, the changes we made. And most of the time it was only about cutting because, you know, people had a lot to say. And then in the in-between bits where we wrote, that was a lot of it was on the direction. We were helped obviously by the great team at HarperCollins, Rose Sandy, Bengono. And that's where we had to use our own pen yeah. womanship to do, um, you know, the foreword, the afterword, the introductions, that sort of thing. I was going to say that, but people took it because sometimes you don't even know of a racist incident in some of the stories. People have taken it and done something else. They've transformed that. They've spoken about other things. So I think it's because that's something else we didn't want it to be. We didn't want it to be just a vetch. So it's more than that. We're just so honoured and pleased and grateful for everybody for opening their hearts to us and giving us that trust because that's a lot of that's a lot there, and we've got 100 people in the book, but obviously we spoke, reached out to many more people. The tone was incredibly important, I think. And with the help of HarperCollins, we realised it was a legacy book. So therefore, we started to have major aspirations for it. We wanted it in schools, we want it in libraries. So we wanted something that could carry a lot of hope as well. So it was important, that tone, that it wasn't just, yeah. you know, a verbal diarrhea of all of the discrimination. For most people who are empathetic will find that too difficult to keep reading. So it had to have that element of hope. The so other thing was... Right from the beginning, Sue, we knew that we wanted that money to go to a charity that was going to serve the small children we saw as ourselves. We wanted to have those brown-skinned children in that song to benefit from the book. And, and, and to the end, we, we spoke to a number of charities and we decided on the um, Ashton Jazz Academy, which is a charity that was started by Tricia Muirhead. Her story is that her daughter, Ashton, the charity is named after her, She's a 14 year old girl, the pressures of being who you are, trying to be who you are, finding yourself were just too much for that young girl. And her mother found her and she'd hanged herself. 
So what Trish did, which is just so admirable, was to take this poison, take this and do something with it. And she started a charity to basically help others to reach out to other young girls, other young women to see what they could do to help and support them so that she's doing her bit to bring in and cradle and hold these other young people. And she's, I mean, it's a small charity, only been going five years. It's punching well above its weight. She runs workshops. I mean, she, they are just fantastic. So we're really proud to be aligned with them and that they're going to benefit from this book. It's so much pressure to be who you are but also conform to what society standards are. Let's talk about the people that you chose to speak to, then we'll come back to some of those things. Of some of the names that you spoke to, what was it? Was it peers that you, like industry peers that you respected? Or obviously there has to be some sort of commercial element. You need the people to, to attract people to actually, actually buy it. But how did you sift through and make a decision about who you were speaking to? There were loads of reasons. It wasn't just the one reason. I think, well, it started small. So it started with the BB crew. We wrote ours, then we invited our, our sisters to write theirs. And then on a very basic level, it was who you knew and who you could access easily. You know, some people we would have loved to have in the book, but they were harder to access. And a lot of it was because they were on maybe potentially international field and, you know, they have their gatekeepers, you know, and also, to, and this is really interesting <laughs> that we decided on a publication date. So that actually tempered virtually every decision we made and we had to work within that date. So of course we couldn't wait for X number of PAs and X number of agents to get the, the invitation to the, their client. So that was just a logistical, practical need. And then it, I think we, we both have a natural curiosity about a, a wide ranging number of people and their different perspective. So even if we didn't know them personally, we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to hear from that person? We, and because to be honest, there's some people that I, I know I've never met, but I feel like I know them really well because I've heard their stories. And, you know, we've had lots of email communication and all of that. We had a lot of recommendations that, you know, people that we knew that could say, I know so-and-so would be great for your book. And then it was, outside of the really famous in inverted commas there were people that within our own lives we knew that had great stories and actually fitted beautifully yeah. into the book and, and another thing that we really were conscious of at one point we didn't want because of where we're a certain age we didn't want to just have people of our own age women we didn't want to just go to women we wanted to make sure that we went to a wide range of people and different people so they weren't just people who were too similar to us. Um, at one point, we wanted to make sure that we got some more scientists. And I happened upon um, Wayne Mitchell at the um, Imperial College, who is a scientist. And he actually is part of a group called We Are One, who do some amazing talks. And that's about diversity there. It's a diverse group of scientists speaking and talking. And Wayne has been, he's not actually in the book, but he linked us up with scientists and there were some people who we were trying to chase to get, but because of logistics, they couldn't get in the book, but fascinating stories, incredible people. And it's made me look into this other world that I didn't know existed. There is so much out there that we're not always aware of. Sometimes you say, oh, well, nobody's ever done this, but sometimes check before you say, because there could well be somebody who has done it. 
and is doing it. Connected to that, we had a lovely link with, um, again, not a black person, Tani Gray Thompson, who happens to be in the House of Lords. And I had a connection to her, which gave us a connection to the House of Lords. There were so many avenues to get to people. And luckily they were so generous with their time. Cause you know, why should they take this up to contact this person, that person on our behalf? So we're very grateful to those people as well. When I mentioned that kind of feeling that, you know, you're on the train, you can't stop. And it's just that otherworldly motivation that drives you to do something. You're both actors. You've both been in the creative space for some years. When was the last time you had that feeling where you're just like, I'm so passionate about this? The last time I think I had that same like drive of, you know, just, um, yeah, sparking, sparking, sparking was when we were writing our sitcom. And that's again with the BB crew. So again, there was a sort of similar motivational element in that here we are, we're in lockdown, we're faced with this potential time. Luckily, we've got this technology and we decided to meet every day and write a sitcom. And with anything new and exciting and it's hard work, we had some roadblocks, but because we knew where we were heading with it, we were always pushing through many tears also. And the same with the book. I've read our book three, four times now, cover to cover, and I've cried every time. That passion and the drive to do something that you know is valuable. I think there's a similarity, I think, with our sitcom and, and with the book. When it's something you have created and something that's very, I mean, intensely meaningful to you, it's incredible. I do remember there was a character that I played and it wasn't a BB crew show. I played this young boy. We had a sketch on the front line and um, you think they're selling weed, but they're not. It's because saltfish fritters have run out and no one can get any saltfish. And so that's what they're selling. And this young boy that I was playing was just so energetic and so incredible and just had so much. I remember playing him adoring it but at the same time coming off every night thinking that boy is going to kill me yeah so writing that sitcom was just and I think any work that we're doing where we are producing it for ourselves in that way the investment is so much higher it's incredibly high of course you go professionally and you're working with things and you're putting your soul in it but when it's work you are producing that you have created the intensity of the investment is so high so I want to ask you about the sitcom, obviously, but I want to go back to the BBQ because it has come up. And I noticed it on the Instagram page when I, with, with the British Blacklist, and it triggered like, oh yeah, the BB crew. And I'm of the generation where I remember the BB crew, but I, to put it into context, when I looked at the description as a theatre cabaret collective of black women, would have gone over my head at the time when I, I and I'm trying I don't you guys can correct me on the years of when BB crew were the BB crew in in more of the public space and um psyche um it would have gone over my head how powerful that was having a bunch of black women come together and form a crew and create art and be in control of that art can you just give a little bit of a backstory about about the BB crew how it came into existence and at the height because in my mind it's like you were along the real McCoy's type space and I think I threw everybody in there. I would have said, oh, the BB crew, oh yeah, that's everybody. That's all the black women that I know that comedians are in that crew. And you were on TV, I think as well. Did you have a show? Suze, <laughs> so you have a clearer memory of our... Of our, um, of our well, I, I kind of do, and I don't, the, 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 basically the people who were the initiators of it 
it wasn't Suzanne or I, we were both invited to become part of this group. The people who were the initiators were Beverly Michaels and Joseph Melville. I think Joanne Campbell was one of them as well, and Judith. But basically there was a, a memorial for yes. an actor called concert. Kelvin Simpson. Kelvin Simpson, and basically it was the Theatre Royal Stratford East. He had died, he was a promising young actor, and he died actually doing a job as a courier, I think it was, just to keep soul, body and soul together, and he died. So basically what happened was this do was organized. And I think it also raised money for his young family because he was a young actor. And the people who got together there were speaking about, you know, doing something. The people who did that, I think, as, as a, I, and I don't want to be too vague with it, I think Beverly Michaels and um, Josephine Melvin were instrumental in getting people together. There was already a group called the Posse, who you may have, you, a queer, you, you were aware of them? Yeah, yeah. They were a male group. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I think they thought, well, yeah, the guys are doing it. The women should be doing it too. And that's where I think that came about. But as I said, Suzanne and I were both invited to be part of the group. We weren't the instigators of the group. So my recollection is a bit fuzzy. I knew Beverly personally and Joanne I'd worked with before. Judith I hadn't met before. I'd worked with Josephine before. So I don't know how my name came about. My name did, and I was very glad that it had. Like I said, in my mind, you were on TV. So if you weren't, what was the point of the BB Crew and how did you get your stuff out there? Why do we know, why do I know about you? Our first show was called On A Level. It was a show that took you from, in fact, conception. We had a scene where we were suddenly running about in the yeah. dark <laughs> with sperm stuck on us. We did a dance where you sort of saw conception, this through babies right through to the end when you see we do a sketch when we are widows it was basically looking at the span of your life we had singing we had uh, sketches that were hard hitting there was some humor there we sort of ran the gauntlet and we got a lot of praise we had fantastic reviews where did it show um, was, it stage, was it a stage production it was a stage production oh, okay. and we toured this country we were invited to go to america did a little mini tour in New York, which was absolutely, I mean, I remember being on the plane going over to New York and I just got married, recently got married. And I remember saying, oh my gosh, if I die now, I'm going to die happy. <laughs> I'm going across to America to do a show that I have co-written with a company I have co-founded. It was like, can it get any better than this? The originality of the BB Crew, I think, you know, we were pretty much the precursors of, you know, collective comedy writers, black, female, from the, you know, African diaspora, but first generation Caribbean. So, and I don't think at the time we realised that impact we were making and, you know, in a political with almost a capital P. And we had, I mean, some amazing review. I mean, I remember Lynn Gardner said that she likened us to the, to the Monty Python, basically. When I read about how we were perceived and also talking to other women, you know, I'm meeting the daughters of the women that saw us in our yeah. original form. And they're saying that power of representation, which traveled right across the stage into the audience was so palpable. And we hit them, you know, cause they hadn't seen this themselves represented we were a mirror and that voice was so obviously so needed and so we're talking what 30 odd years now ago 
I think maybe 35. I mean, yeah, yeah it, it was. And we, we were in it, but we weren't realizing. And we no, were courted. No. We had, you know, production companies after us, but we were wary basically of being exploited because that oh, was a story oh, for a lot of people. So we were very, very weary, but um, it was, um, yeah. It, 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 we as it, actually just standing back from it, you realize, gosh, the impact that we did have. Um, because of course it was before, you know, the social media and whatever we have yeah. now, because of course, yeah. if that was going on then, of course, everybody would have recordings of it and know what this was and that was, yeah. And I, I think it's lovely that now you're coming back, not coming back as in individuals, but re-delivering your voice and who you are through this book. But you have, both of you have worked quite consistently through the industry. And at the time of the BB crew, were you black women in the arts trying to get work or were you black women in the arts who actually we were doing all right? We were trying to get work. I mean, the landscape now is very, very different from how it was in the 80s and the early 90s. I mean, I think Sue's going to agree with me. I just love it when I see these young, and I'm saying young because I'm in my 50s. So anybody who's in their 30s or 40s is young to me but the people in their twenties, how they are coming up and what they are doing and seeing the work that they are getting and producing and the standard. I'm just in awe. I love it. I love it because that the work wasn't there for us in that way. You would be going up, even if you've had a body of work. I mean, I take somebody like in our own circle, Judith Jacob, who has a huge body of work, who has been working since, I mean, she was a child actor. She started quite young. I yeah. remember seeing her in Angels. And she, I think she was about 16 or something then. I mean, really powerful, good work. I mean, if she'd have gone to America, she'd be living in a big condo now. She'd be doing all sorts of things. But with this huge body of work behind her, she was still, um, by the time we'd got to be, you know, scrabbling for work, trying to find work, getting, you know, people weren't just saying, Judith, read this script, let's see, which I think is now happening for young black actors and that is important you know but, but then that really wasn't happening and if you think of the generation before us and then the generation before that probably like Claire Benedict who maybe some people haven't heard of who was a phenomenal actress who would be probably she probably was about generation behind us because she was then she and then behind there would be Carmen Monroe and Corinne Skinner Carter and Mona Hammond and and other names I don't want to start naming names and missing people out but basically the careers that people can have now, I know there's still, you know, a, there's still a fight and there's a lot of a way to go, but I'm still, I'm just really thinking it's wonderful. But no, so to answer the question, yeah, we hadn't arrived and were then trying to just say, we started the company because we had to create our own work and we wanted to have it to be authentic to our voices. We didn't want somebody else telling us how to be black, which you were getting. Can I, can I also add to that? Um, everything, yeah, I totally agree with Sue's. I, I mean, personally, I always remember um, that there's a sense for us then, and I think you're right, Suze, things have changed, obviously for the better, but there was, you were always having to go back to ground zero. So wherever you were, you went back to ground zero. And I can speak personally of that. I had been in Brookside before I did BB Crew. And when I left, I couldn't get a gig on television. And one of the things that was, was being told um, by, to my agent, and I completely believe what he said, was we know what she can do. So I'd had 
you know, pretty good reviews. My character was loved. I was in a very hot show at the time, but I went back to ground zero because that I was almost, I was put in that box. That's what Suzanne Packer can do. So what I did, and I was very lucky, and I do see that as very, uh, it, this is very fortunate because before I hit television, I did four years of theater. So I just hid myself in theater after Brookside. And I don't believe a white actor would have had that same yeah. story. I think they would have gone from Brookside and then they would have gone into something potentially would have been written for them. They would have been yeah. the name above the title, but no, that was not the case as a black actor. No. If you were good, cause you were, you're an excellent actress. There were people who were on par with you, but they went on because they were white. They had a different career and their career tra trajectory was just completely different. So that's why I love it now when I say, yes, they don't have to go completely back. They can say, right, okay, I've done this. I'm standing on this work and I'm moving on. And also I'm in awe of the young people who are right getting out there home. and creating things. They haven't got this headlock where they think, oh no, I need to have a production company to guide me, to put me this way or to put this out because we've come from that kind of old school way of thinking and thinking that that's the only audience there is. They're finding other ways of creating and getting it out there, which I have so much admiration for. When I speak to those of our generation, our generations, there is that conversation like we've seen revolutions happen. We've created revolutions. We've been part of revolutions and movements. BB Crew would have been a revolution and a movement. As you are still working actors, thank God, there's been a shift. There's been a black British Black Renaissance in the arts, for sure, for the past couple of years. There's been a reawakening and a re-emerging, and we're going to do this. We're going to take control of our stories and narratives. Do you feel like something's different this time around? Because you would have seen it before. We came with, you know, our parents' sense of just fit in. Don't raise your head too high up. Just keep yourself nice and quiet because we don't want any trouble. I think that's gone quite rightly. And I think where we were waiting to be invited into these institutions, no, there's no invitation. I either take the key, open the door, or I come through the window. That's the massive difference. Or um, what a lot of them are doing, they're saying, listen, I'm making my own. I've yeah, got I don't want to come in. Pocket. I don't want to come I'm in build it. my own building. Exactly. I've yeah. got my own little room. I don't need your table. I've got this. I'm That's working right. it. That's and right. basically they're valuing it in a different way. That's right. Because I know that the fight, a lot of our fight, even as BB Crew, was about not being told, oh, well, you can go to the studio. You can't do the main house. But we were filling main houses. But we had to be fighting for that. And we wanted to fight for that. But now I think people are saying, well, look, all right, your studio, your main house, doesn't matter where, I'm going to get the people because they are also using technology. So the thing about being empowered means you, there's no asking for permission. Well, that waiting. is the colonial mentality, isn't it? That's what yeah. our parents brought us. And yes. we were first generation British. So of course, we're not going to be outside of that thinking. Also, from the point of empowering you know that's part of what the legacy we want of our book for a year from now you know I hope you'll you'll be interviewing us again because I want to see how our book has been part of this constant movement no longer to be as you said that cyclical you know okay yeah Black Lives Matter is you know in the news 2021 whatever happened you know when we're in 2031 what happened to Black Lives Matter and Suzanne Packer and Suzette Llewellyn and still breathing, no, no. That is a personal fight I, I have that we're not going to slide back into the margins. We, we've got to keep hold of this moment and extend it. You know, now we've got the white working class conversation going on. 
that somehow we are to blame for that because we're talking about white privilege. Okay, okay. Do you know what? Well, let's not just get distracted. Let's keep moving the way we're moving. And that, do you know what? That's part of how I feel empowered by doing the book. Wait, I'm taking that on personally. Can I just quickly add? You both got locks. Yes. Yeah. Just being black women with locks in the acting industry, like, you know. Okay. Well, just that, actually, that alone is a complete and utter change. I used to wear a lot of head wraps and you used to go to interview. I mean, now you do a lot of self-tapes, but you had to go to auditions. You went in. If I wore a head wrap somewhere, people would think, oh, um, is she going to chant down Babylon? There was all this kind of, you know, what, what does it mean? What does it symbolize? The fact that people had to often, I mean, I had wigs. There were some actresses who didn't. I remember Judith, again, I'm going back to Judith Jacob because she was such a powerful influence, oh. I think, and also figure because she had locks. And she was, because even when she was in No Problem, they were false locks, but they were, false, they were locks. And then she had locks and she was on television. And that was really, really powerful. That was a big statement. I mean, from that, it grew that other people also said, you know, yeah, I'm going to free up my hair. I'm not going to have to have the wig to go in because I had, yeah, about five, six wigs, you know, you have one here, you do whatever, but that's telling you something. I mean, I even got a job, I think, because I had the locks. For me, it's become more about, firstly, um, I would have had locks 20 years before, probably when we first started BB Crew, but my parents hated them. Oh, yes. And, you know, they're Jamaican. And so, you know, and obviously I was always a, you know, a good girl, never a rule breaker. And I think part of coming into my own actually is, I'm really sorry, ma'am, she still hates them. But I'm sorry, you don't even have a say anymore. I have bowed down to your feelings for too long. <laughs> yeah. But the other side of it, it comes from a professional side as well, because what I was always having terrible trouble at casualty because I never felt anybody was qualified to do my hair in its natural state. And that's still an ongoing conversation yeah. across the whole of the BBC, especially for us, certainly on television. We made them come off too lightly by going, spending our own money, getting our hair either processed or weaved so that they didn't have to have the trouble of doing our hair. Now, do you know what? I'm, I'm just, it's taking ownership and it's taking ownership. And this is key for me, taking ownership with pride. It's no longer a deficit model. That's what's important to me now. It's a positive this is who I am. This is how I choose to do my hair. You go and get educated and find out how to, to work with natural hair. But in the meantime, I can't, I can't wait for that. So there's a political and private for, for my hair story. Yeah. I mean, I had my hair shaved for many years because I, I just, it, it was easier as well. And I loved it. I loved having my head just to, to feel that. So and if I want to take off my locks, I will definitely just have my head shaved again and then grow it. But yeah. But I think that movement towards natural hair is, is in testimony where you see so many salons. Yeah. I mean, Morris Roots, he's got like, what, six, four, five salons, I think now? Yeah. He's got East, West, North, South London. He's got another one. So, yeah, yeah, there are lots of other people just natural. So that's another thing about us as Black people in this country. Your difference is what makes you unique. Your Blackness is not going to be erased or moved around. You, you're going to stand up and be who you are in that way. Absolutely. I think that's yeah. important. Yeah, it is important just, just, just because of the natural hair movement. I, I'm a shaver as well when I feel like it. And then when I want my hair big, I just fling something in it. And, but it is that, and 
making sure that our we're in control of what our look is and not someone telling us what black is through their eyes and I think Locks is such a powerful statement on all so many levels, even being black and our conservative parents are like, oh no, that's a bit criminalistic, isn't it? But yet the free and the freeness of having locks and all that type of stuff. So I had to talk about that. So I've got quick questions before we go. Um, give me a book outside of not 100, but give me a book that you guys have to have in your possession at all times, wherever you go, wherever you move on your bookshelf is this particular book, Suzette. That's a wicked question because I know. that is like, asking me which of my children I, I I who's my favorite or which one do I prefer <laughs> that is no that that is serious that is yeah. definitely and if you ask me for one song I couldn't give you one yeah, song that's either coming um, that's coming next anyway so give me a book Toni Morrison's Beloved okay as fiction because I totally adored her I did actually interview her at the Bloomsbury Theatre and she was just I mean I danced with her at the Groucho Club she was a phenomenal woman and the generosity of that woman was just, I mean, because I was so awestruck, this interview was before an invited audience. I was just, <laughs> she came here to promote her book Jazz at yeah. the time. And I asked her if she would read from Beloved. And she said, uh, I know I'm here to promote Jazz, but I'm reading this because she wants me to. Oh, bless her. <laughs> Toni Morrison, but that is a very wicked question because there are so many that I could give you 20, but I'm just like, yes, these are my, I'll grab them as I jump out the window if there's a fire. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at my bookshelf and I'm like, I'm so glad no one's asking me this question ever. Um, Suzanne. Yeah, but you ask, you see now, that's I wicked. know, it, again, it's so painful to have to pick one, but I would have to say Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. And partly because I really connect with Anna Karenina I connect, I think, which is so telling, um, with the tragedy of her life. I connect with the fight against patriarchy. I connect with the fight against misogyny. There's so much loss as a woman. You know, she loses her child. She loses the love of her life. She loses her status in society. And what I think about the book that draws me, that very human story is set against this massive backdrop of Russian life, that macrocosm of war and modes of society, where it places men in that and love. I just think it's just, it's a feast. You might not like every part of the recipe, yeah, but, but there's so much you can, you know, nibble on. And then you go back to that's for me. She's oh. a victim of her own. So that is so much yeah, about that human condition, about how we wonderful. work Suzette, against ourselves Suzette, in so many ways. You're trying to squeeze in another book to your list. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me with my book. Sneak <laughs> <laughs> that one in too. Okay, give me a song or an album that if your friends put it on. No, no, so listen, this is a bit easier. That if your friends or your family put this particular track or music on, they know that you guys are going to start shaping your bum bum. For me, yeah, there's one. My girls know that if they put on Want You Back by the Jackson Five, it doesn't matter what mood I'm in. I'm, I could be vexed with them. And those girls go, poof. And I know, they know I'm off. There you go. I am gone. I will definitely say that. I can say that's the one that would just get me anytime I hear that. Oh. Yeah, wow. Oh, for me, it would be Stevie Wonders. Um, for once in your life, I have someone who needs me. And even when I say it, it makes my eyes water. Every time I hear it, it's the tiniest, shortest song you can ever imagine. Very few lyrics. It's very repetitious. But they're, I don't know, again, it's one of those that 
you know, not jump up, jump up, but somehow it connects with my spirit. See, that wasn't hard. Okay, give me something that you've seen on stage and it could be a concert or a play that had had the most impact on you. Wow. Sue, you go first for a change. Oh God, <laughs> okay, concert <laughs> have had the most impact. I'm still thinking. Oh, well, it's this is easy, but you know, it's not one particular concert, but I've seen Prince live five times. Me too, five times too. Yes, me too. Oh, baby. Yes. And I, I could, I could, you know, when Sue said about being on that plane, having just, you know, new bride and all of that, I could die and, and be happy to die in the middle of Prince performing his music. Yeah. yeah, it has to be a Prince concert. Yeah, actually, that's amazing because I was I was thinking still of stage thing. I was really trying to, but I remember when we saw him at the O2 and then we saw him afterwards in the smaller venue and the man was it's like he was in my in my front room because I could have just and the oh yeah he was just such such a I've been to a powerhouse and constantly music was just everywhere I mean you know that even after that after he did a big concert then he did the smaller venue he was going to go back jamming. and jamming with the other musicians I went to a party um, with Prince not with Prince and Prince was the guest of honor, you can imagine. Have you told me that, Sue? Is this the first yeah, time I'm hearing yeah. this? No, yeah, it might be, yeah, yeah. He was the VVIP. There were people like Kylie, um, Brian Ferry, um, Kate Moss, there were these big, you know, like we know as big celebrities, and Prince was the guest, he sat on a throne. Oh God, <laughs> it was just, I mean, I don't think I've ever told you, Sue. Anyway, well, he's, he's a prince. He's a prince. He's got to he sit on the throne. Oh the my! You oh. guys are just speaking to my sensibilities because, like, <laughs> I'm just like, because five times I went to a twenty-one concert. I went to the one. I, I mean, my, it's not my. It's not yeah. about me. I'm just saying. I've seen it five times. The last time <laughs> we need one, to meet a problem. Yes, we do. Good chat. Be part of the Purple Brigade. The Purple Literally. Brigade. The oh. last time I saw. I mean, the last time I saw him when I was, you know, he did the premiere. He did the after party concert for Amazante's film Bell and he touched my hand and I was like, oh, I'm gonna die. I could, you, your plane story, I could have died that moment. He touched my hand. I was like, so yes, I think we're all on one on that most impactful stage moment. Definitely are. What's made you sad, mad and glad this week? Oh, well, what's made me a bit sad this week is my very holy cabbages on my allotment. They made me a bit oh, sad. The slugs, is it? Those slugs are having a oh, feast. They, are sad. they were having because all the wet weather. So yeah, and they've eaten my sunflowers. They're sort of trying to push through. Oh no. Um, yeah. I mean, apart from the book and other great things that are happening in my life, what also made me happy though was that I looked, I was moan, bemoaning the sunflowers and the um cabbages with the sort of like lace work. And then I suddenly saw the mange too. Gorgeous. And they made All you wonderful care. there. So, you know, you've got to keep remembering that. Don't keep crying over the sunflowers and the cabbages and the lace work there. Look, you're going to see there's Monge too. I got a huge, I mean, I just pick, 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 pick. I was so happy. So that immediately that made me really, really happy. Mad was definitely this foolishness that the government are trying to push out. And when do they push it out? On Windrush Day. Exactly. Just to remind everybody, these are the people you got to hate. Um, and then immediately I read something by Emma, you know, the historian, the Irish historian. Oh, was it Emma Didabiri? Yes. Fantastic. Fantastic. Just five yeah. slides. She, she encapsulated it all, explained it all. She is just like... So you were sad about the slugs, mad about the nonsense government, and then glad about the monstu 
and of course the book. Suzanne, what's made you sad? Okay, now? well, definitely the GLADS, my son doing so well at his A-levels. That is just brilliant. Mad, yeah, the, the white privilege comments, that, that's just diabolical. It really, it's, it's almost, if it wasn't so serious, you'd be laughing. Yeah. That, that's how ridiculous it was. It was, it was that, wicked. It. it was very wicked, and they're just so really? clever with this. As I said, how yeah. they released it, when so they released it. Sad would be um, my friend who's just had open heart surgery. Totally, absolute shock. Didn't realise he even had a problem with his heart, and um, and that's made me sad. But you know, again, it's the poison medicine. You know, you take the good things out of some things, and even if it's not your story. And like I had ended up having a wonderful existential conversation with my son about, we don't know what's around the corner. So live for today, try and get the best out of today, try and make value today. So with that sad came, yeah, it's the bittersweet, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you ladies. I guess just finally, you've spoken about the inspiration. You spoke about why it, why it exists. So what do you hope for the journey of, um, of the book? I want to say the title, I keep saying the book and not the title, the proper title. Yeah, Still, Still Breathing, 100 Voices on Racism. We, we need to keep pushing that name, pushing that name. So I, I mean, I want it to be a really, I want it to be a bestseller. I want the charity to, to benefit. I want people to read these stories. I want them to learn from these stories. I want us to uh, keep sharing and, and keep speaking out, to keep speaking out. What does Audrey Lord say? Your silence will not protect you. Ditto, and I suppose just to add is, I wanted to encourage people not to, to be uncomfortable around the conversation of race. And I suppose I'm purposely directing that at white people mm-hmm. because I think the fear around it stops, stops us moving forward because we need solid solidarity to make these changes, to you know get the right people in government. It can't just be black people voting. So more and more this conversation is being had however uncomfortable you feel. And if, if in some way the book, you know, can be the starting point for those conversations, great. Not the book, still breathing 100 voices on racism. Thanks. That's it. <laughs> um, ladies, it was wonderful speaking to you this morning. Um, I'm so glad we've spoken and I hope to speak to you again. Of course we've spoken okay. again. Um, thank you. And thank you for all the work you're doing. I have big props to you. Thank, thank you. you so much, been a joy.